The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast mini episode. Mini episode. It's a little episode. It's going to go really fast. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a short episode that uh, won't be two hours. And uh, I think co- people understand the concept of a mini episode. I'll stop talking. Tonight we're going to be talking about Sundance Film Festival 2015. I'm Ben Rock. And I'm Ilya Friedman. And joining us today is a special guest. You brought the wrong person for a mini episode. <laughs> so I'm a big talker. So we have a guest, which the two of us have never actually had a guest at the same time. No, we've, we've not. This is now three people who are uh, talking into microphones. Although Ilya and I are sharing a microphone. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a nice okay. visual. You can imagine that John and Ben Paul. and I are, are cheek to cheek. It's very cute. So we are here with our special guest, Mark Stolaroff. The founder of the No Budget Film School and uh, a uh, producer extraordinaire. Wow. I got the extraordinaire just added to my title there. I, I, I love your work, man. I love your, your producing and I love your, your attitude about how to make films on a shoestring. Yeah. Mark is uh, famous, actually, for his crusades in the no budget filmmaking world. And there's a lot of people out there who have experimented with this. Big budget people have experimented with the no budget. And uh, Mark has really brought his uh, particular bent and style of the no budget project to the forefront, to the mainstream. I think thousands and thousands of people have taken his uh, his course. Before we start, where can people find you? Uh, what's your website? Uh, I can be found at nobudgetfilmschool.com. We're doing something we've never done before for our listeners, and that's that we want to offer them a chance to take the uh, No Budget Film School with you. Uh, and you have a promo code, which is? We're going to do Hot Rod for Hot Rod Camera, because I'm wearing I'm wearing the Hot Rod Camera shirt. So if you go to nobudgetfilmschool.com and you want to take his class, which is? February 28th and March 1st. That's the last weekend in February. It's a two-day class. It's my flagship class, the art and science of no-budget filmmaking. If you go to the Eventbrite page, which you can reach through my website, which is nobudgetfilmschool.com, there's a link to the Eventbrite page, which is no budget film school dot Eventbrite or something like that. Uh, you plug in the promo code Hot Rod H O T R O D one word into the little uh, box where it says enter promo code enter promotional code and you'll get twenty percent off. All attendees get a free copy of Movie Magic Screenwriter Software, which is two hundred fifty dollar oh, wow. value. So you're making money essentially. So you just take that and put it on eBay, and you've made a profit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. That's a good idea. <laughs> Mark is advocating taking his class so you can make money by selling items on eBay. Yeah, that's always, you know, you get other freebies too and you can do whatever you want. We we raffle a ton of stuff actually and I don't know what happens to that stuff. It's usually my films. I hate to see them on uh, on eBay for 2 bucks, you know, whatever. That'd be a bummer. But movie magic, you know. Yeah. It's already there. So we're here to talk about Sundance Film Festival. I did not attend the Sundance Film Festival 2015, but both of you did. Yeah, that's true. I saw a few movies, but I did not see anywhere near the number of movies that Mark did. And Mark uh, also has a really great perspective on all this, being uh, the founder of the No Budget Film School and a producer. And uh, there's a lot of movies that go to Sundance which have budgets and a lot that don't. But 
I, for one, am extremely interested to uh, share with what I saw and get some feedback from from you, Mark, and also find out what you saw and you thought was really good and really, uh, you know, maybe had remarkable cinematography or was just a great movie experience. Yeah, well, there were a number of movies that I I saw that we could talk about as far as the cinematography goes. Um, I saw kind of a light number for me. I saw 27 films this year. That's, I think, below my normal average. This is my 20th year going to Sundance. Good Lord, Um, you've gone to Sundance every year for 20 years. 20 years. One year I saw six movies in one day, and they were all with tickets, which is almost impossible to do, frankly. Wow. And not much fun, by the way. Yeah, when when you're shoehorning in that many movies, you're you're not really eating. You're not. You I'm know. eating the entire time to keep from falling asleep. Actually, oh, wow. so it's miserable. It's miserable. Way I've, to get. I've been known to take the occasional Sundance nap when I'm when I've been there. Um, now, uh, what? Just paint me a picture. Like, what is what is the re, what is your reason when you go to Sundance Film Festival? What are you going there to look for? What? Why are you there? And why are you seeing as many films as you're seeing? Well, I have kind of a uh, strange agenda. I used to go uh, when I was at Next Wave Films. Uh, I used to go with films, which is always the best way to go. Unless you're going with a film, then you think, God, I just wish I could just come to Sundance and watch movies. But then you start doing that and you're like, I wish I had a film here. Um, so now I go kind of with multiple agendas. One is because I'm making films that I that I would like to get into Sundance, I like to try to see, you know, keep up to date with what's getting into Sundance. What are, what are, what are they kind of looking for? Um, at least from, from a kind of macro kind of a viewpoint from a producing standpoint, I can kind of go, okay, this, this feels like a Sundance film. Maybe what I'm working on doesn't feel like a Sundance film and maybe that's fine. But if I'm trying to make a Sundance film, it's probably helpful to have some sense of what they, what gets into the festival each year. Um, I also look, I specifically try to see all the next films because, uh, I often pull filmmakers from that section for my class um, because that's the quote. It used to be known as the kind of low budget section. I think they've, they're trying to get rid of that idea. Um, and uh, but it, when it, they first started, it was like these are films that are under half a million dollars. Um, although there are films in dramatic competition that also can be, you know, no budget or micro budget. So that's the other reason. Then obviously I go for networking and, you know, you try to see your friends. I go, you know, have fun. It's a kind of multiple agenda trip. Let me just uh, jump in here for one second, because one thing that I know we've talked about is what is a Sundance movie and what is the type of movie that gets programmed and played at Sundance? And uh, this year, it seemed, at least to me and from my conversations with other people, that uh, it had to be a little bit uh, lascivious. It had to be a little bit, uh, you know, salacious. It had to have some sort of like uh, pseudo erotic and boobs. You're saying it had to have boobs. I think penis is really where they're going. These really? Days. <laughs> Last several years. It's been more penis than. Oh, well, well, that is a new frontier. <laughs> Mark, why don't you. Uh, I, I talked to several people who kind of walked out of movies who were like, what did I just see? Uh, what's your take on on what the 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 typical or what sort of like the maybe the nouveau 2015 Sundance programming movie is I, you know I think it's I mean there's 125 roughly 125 features in the festival and when you see 27 of them and you've missed 100 of them it's probably hard and I think this is what every critic tries to say here's what Sundance was this year but they've seen tiny fraction no one's seen all 125 movies that are in the festival so I think it's really hard to to really come up with like this is what a Sundance movie is or this is what this year meant. No, but um, you know what what's getting the buzz, what people are talking about. Sure. And I think that, you know, I can I can say that with some confidence though with the next section, which I saw seven of the eight or I missed one of them. I don't know if there were eight, I saw seven. Um 
I got a pretty good handle on that section. I thought that section did feel like of a group to me. Um, and if I could define that section, for instance, um, last year, uh, Obvious Child was in that section, and that was a kind of overtly commercial film. And this year, there weren't, to me, there really weren't overtly commercial films. They were films that came out of the festival, and people were talking about them, and and they were getting attention. But they, but in the moment that I saw them in a press screening, because I have a, a an SIO badge, it's a press and industry badge, so I saw all my films mostly, in, uh, except for a couple, in press screenings. So you don't get the public, you don't get all that like public energy. You have people walking out. If a film doesn't isn't performing all that well to the to these people, they'll just walk out. I hate that. I really. I mean, whenever I'm in one of those screenings, it's like sit there, for, you know, for another half an hour. Yeah. Dude. I mean, you don't pay for this ticket, so you can just kind of walk out and go to the next thing. And and um, but but there's a different. Like I saw Bellflower years ago, and I had those guys in my class. Um, I had I saw that film before the public screening and the press screening. Most of the people walked out of that screening, and then it became like a buzz film of the festival. So it's an interesting kind of thing to see it without the kind of cues around you of like you know this is a great movie. People are really digging this movie, even though a film like Tangerine, which which has been which got a ton of buzz coming out of that festival, it didn't feel like that in that press screening because it's not a it's not an overtly commercial film. But it certainly hit a, a vein or something with the, with an, with the audiences. I think more unexpectedly. I think that if you were to see that in a vacuum, you would have gone, "Oh, who's going to want to see a film like this? It's with these these characters, these transvestite, transsexual characters, or whatever. Who wants to see that?" And then you then you showed it Sundance, and people really get excited about it. And and I think that's what's great about Sundance. You never know. It's not just transvestites. My understanding is it's transvestite hookers. Is that that right? It's a Hollywood it's, Boulevard. It's, it's like, a yeah. loud, obnoxious. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not just, they're, they're, they're spirited, you know, people. And I think it, I think that turned off some of the people in that audience that I saw it with, but I think the, the public screening, which I didn't attend, I think those people really got into it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Sean Baker, the director. Um, he was a guest speaker in my class. I've seen all his feature films. He, he works in a really interesting way. And from a kind of no budget filmmaking perspective, it's like right down the, you know, right down the center of what I kind of teach. And, um, he'd called me before he got into Sundance at, he said he had no money and he was looking for, you know, suggestions on, on grading the film and doing sound. And so that I knew that he, he was made for very little money. He didn't tell me what he shot on. And I was going to ask him cause I, cause I talked to my colorist, you know, to see if he, he wanted to work on it and I didn't know what he'd shot on. Um, but I never did ask him. And so I went in to see the film and I'm watching it and I'm thinking, okay, it has a kind of raw look that I m- might expect from, from the way Sean shoots. Cause he shoots very, in a kind of re- really raw and authentic kind of a way. But I kept imagining it was probably shot with a seven D or some kind of, you know, DSLR, or maybe even a, you know, higher end camera he shot with an F3 on uh, his last film, Starlet. I had no idea until the very end until I, cause I usually stay and watch the credits and see what I can learn from the credits that it was shot with the iPhone. And I was like, wow. Cause it just, it, it answered a lot of questions that I had, but I never once thought while I was watching it, like, this looks like, like it was shot with an iPhone. This looks like I could have shot this on my iPhone. I never thought that. It it, it had an incredibly vibrant style to it. And the look was suited that style completely. So the way they colored it, and even though they obviously didn't have control over, you know, the light and all those kind of things that, you know, the diff- the problems with shooting with an iPhone, all of those all of that went with the film. And I think that's the key to shooting that film on the iPhone. It wasn't a stunt. It was a film that was designed in every way 
to take advantage of and 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 leverage that kind of look that you're going to get from that from that camera. So the characters, the, the their their whole energy went with that kind of shooting. The multiple story points because he was he was covering different stories and so it was kind of a collision of these different um, characters that all kind of collide at the end. There were a number of aspects of it that I think really the iPhone was really the maybe the only phone that could have shot I mean the only camera that could have shot that film. And I'm going to be speaking with him and interviewing him soon. Uh, and writing about it for my uh, website, but I had to guess as I was watching it, it was shot on most of the film was shot in the on the corner like Santa Monica and Highland, which is a very busy corner if you if you live in Los Angeles. And I was thinking, I don't think he's got a permit for this. Like I, I, you know, I know that's how he shoots. And like all of us are in the film. Like if you watch it carefully, you'll just see yourself walking. <laughs> yeah, in the exactly. Background like, like you're over there. You know, you're 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 taking your dog to the D, or you're getting some food down the street or whatever, you know, yeah. you're in that film. Um, but just the way, just the, it felt to me, now he could have, he could have gotten a permit, but I, I just, I don't know. I'm going to find out, but it, it didn't feel like that kind of film that, and knowing him that he had a permit and I'm like, well, wow, that's, you know, he's out on the streets and whatever. And then when you think, okay, well he shot with an iPhone, that makes total sense. Wait, would you need a permit if you were out shooting with an iPhone? No, that's what I'm saying. If you shot with an iPhone, you could get away with that. I mean, my understanding is he shot with three iPhones. They were all wearing wireless mics. There were there were no booms, and I guarantee you, they that whatever they were doing out on the streets, people weren't imagining that they were making a movie, which is the whole key, which is what I kind of teach in my class, frankly. Um, but the really amazing thing, this is when I started going, wait a second, how's he doing this? There was there was this like amazing jib shot, several. There were these um, unbelievable shots where they were, where the camera was, sorry, the camera was whizzing by the the characters in this really energetic way. And then there were these like jib shots. These like re- look like real live crane shots. And I was like, wow, I wonder how he's doing that because that you would need a permit to set up a crane and do let me, that. Shot. Let me guess, duct tape, broomstick. Exactly. Yeah, this no. is what I'm thinking. I'm going to find <laughs> this out. But that's I mean, once I learned the iPhone, I'm like, okay, he didn't get a permit. He t- he taped this camera onto a stick and lifted it up. And um and because. It makes total third, sense. Third part, Adobe Warp Stabilizer. Right, exactly. Um, safe to say, Mark, that they're probably not going to make the next James Bond movie on an iPhone after after seeing this or the next uh, you know, Lord of the Rings epic type of thing. The look of the iPhone to you didn't, you know, serve the story and was appropriate. But you're not you're not saying that, you know, the iPhone is now a replacement for look, all of the, the key to yeah. anything. I mean, I, anything I teach in my class is. Um, you, you, whatever the choice you're going to make with however you make a film, and when you're taking my class, the idea is you're going to make a film without any money at all. So you're going to have to, you know, first you're going to have to write around the things that you have, and that might be not only just like props and costumes and locations, but I only have access to like three or four people that are going to help me, and I have no money to pay anybody. I have, I only have this camera. I can borrow a 7D or I own an i an iPhone or whatever. And the the what I teach in my class is that. When you decide to make a movie that way and you're going to write for the things that you have and you're going to take it, you're going to, you're going to work around your limitations and which is, which is again, what Sean did very well. Um, I mean, you can look at the limitations of an iPhone and say, well, you know, how can I take advantage? You know, how can I turn the limitations and opportunities, blah, blah, blah. What can I do with this phone, with this, with this camera that I can't do with a, with even a DSLR? Um, and you could see him doing that. So when you decide to do that, you have to say, you know, I'm not trying to make every kind of movie this way. I'm trying to make the one movie that my situation gives me, my particular resources, my, my, the limitations I have. There's one unique specific movie that, that my situation gives me and I'm going to make that movie. So it's, yeah, of course you're not gonna make Skyfall 
um, that way. So, well, well, that being said, though, and I'm not going to name his name because I don't know if he wants the story out there, but I know a pretty prominent DP who shot a TV series. And when they finished the TV series and they'd wrapped, he was on his way flying back to L.A. And the assistant editor, or maybe it was the editor, called him and said, are you on an airplane right now? And they hadn't taken off yet. And he was like, yeah. And they were like, can you get an insert shot of your finger just pushing this button on, on, you know, like the call button on the airplane on your iPhone? And he did it and it aired on network television. Yeah, I mean, that and it's a two second shot. Yeah, and I don't think that's a big I think there's a lot of these kind of shots. I mean, look at Rush. I mean, there were GoPros and all kinds of stuff, right? On that, on that, um, he shot with all kinds of different cameras on, on that film. And I think that people get I think, so I think they hung shot, up. They stopped. I, I have privileged information about Rush, and I think they stopped just short of GoPros, but they used a lot of other cameras. But you know, but I think that these quick shot. I mean, look at uh, Shane Hurlburt or whatever. I you know that that car movie that he just did. Um, I know there were need for speed. Need for speed. There were a number of cameras on that. I'm sure. And a friend of mine said that they would lose cameras. Like they would set up cameras and then they wouldn't be able to find where they put them. <laughs> and that you know the plot, they kind of lost some of the well, yeah, some of that too. Um, but but there were some great shots in that in that movie. I think people get way too hung up. I not to go off and you can edit this out if you want. But I I I posted something on my on a stage thirty two. Uh, on my stage 32 wall or whatever, uh, uh, this article I'd written about um, demystifying the camera. And um, I did a little intro in there about, I'm not a cinematographer, but, you know, I wrote this article about, you know, kind of from a producer standpoint about understanding cameras because I'd seen this guy, Alex Bono, do a terrific presentation. And I was basically just looking at, you know, writing for my notes. Um, And then the cinematographer jumps on and starts saying a bunch of stuff about what I'd said. And I mean, I find that when I get into arguments with cinematographers, they're not, they, it's not that they're wrong. It's just that as a producer who has to look at a project from the very, very beginning, all the way to the very, very end, the very, very end, meaning way past when audiences see it, you know, you just have to take a holistic view of these things. And so things like we've gotten this argument about, about four, four, four versus four, two, two with the Alexa, which I shot my last, last film with the Alexa. And, um, he made some big deal about how, you know, the the sacrifices that would have had to been made if we'd shot 422 it was like it's so good that we didn't shoot 422 and I'm like, let me just tell you that that film the the difference between 422 and 444 it was it caused us a lot of problems in post shooting 444 um because we didn't have any money in post and we were running it through this system that couldn't barely kind of handle it. But I can tell you right now from stepping way back on that film and we, you know, and we shot it in 2012 and we premiered it in 2013 so I can I can step back now. It, that the the difference between four two two and four 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 is laughable. It just means nothing, and no one cares. And 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 if you think it makes it look better at the film festival or better on on the on the on the Vimeo that everybody's watching on, that's been crunched down so much or anything. I mean, it does not matter at all. I can just tell you that. And it didn't. We didn't have any money to. Does not matter at all for your movie. For for my movie, yes. exactly. I for just, a bigger movie where clear. you have the resources, whatever. But on a hundred thousand dollar movie. Um, where you're just you're trying to make this thing you're trying to just get it finished and whatever and And i'm assuming that you weren't making like a heavily green screen no green screen something that would need the color space you know not there wasn't a lot ton of equipment wasn't lit in a kind of a certain kind of a way it looks i think it looks terrific it looks exactly you shot 444 you would your life would have been easier yeah i mean and i had we had these conversations with the dp who's like i needs to do this and blah 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 but you know i just feel like if you're a dp that is your job to say i have to get the best quality and blah 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 but if you're a producer you have to balance that with all the other considerations and this dp tried to say that he he understood those considerations but i don't think a 
uh, a DP understands them or needs to understand them or should understand them in the way that a producer does. And I, we're getting kind of far afield, I guess. But Yeah, I was going to bring us back to Sundance, but I think this is interesting stuff. And I I think I will leave it in the podcast. Yeah, and- I, I, I think so, too. I think this is great. But, you know, let's let's go back to Sundance because there are some <clears throat> other were great things at Sundance. The whole reason I was out at Sundance this year was actually to support several of our clients who had movies at the festival. I was actually very pleased to be able to see most of them, which was great. Of course, uh, Byron Warner, who's shot all kinds of wonderful stuff, uh, shot a movie there called Reversal in the Midnight Section. Bridger Nielsen also had a movie in the Midnight Section called The Nightmare. We have a client who's a camera operator named uh, Kyle Wulschleger, and I, I believe I got his name correct. He's a Steadicam operator, and he shot the Steadicam on a movie that was released or is going to be partially released by CNN Films. I was, you know, my ignorance here. I didn't know CNN had a film division. Uh, it's called uh, Fresh Dressed, I believe, and that movie uh, got some some good feedback. I heard from people at the festival. Um, also, of course, uh, John Guglisarian, who uh, has had a tremendous year, shot all kinds of stuff. Uh, he was there with a movie uh, called The Overnight, which I believe was a Duplass Brothers produced movie. So produce, yeah. I saw the overnight, and um, I read that he had he had shot with a C five hundred before I went into it. And the thing I liked about I love that movie. By the way, it was my first favorite movie of the festival. There, you know, you see a bunch of movies, and then you have you end up with several favorites. But it's I love the Duplass Brothers. I've had Jay Duplass in my class before. Um, I love that kind of style uh, of filmmaking. And again, they didn't direct it. I don't know how much they had to do with ultimately with the way that movie felt or looked, but it did have that feel of, of like a hump day kind of a feel to it, which uh, is also not a, a, a Duplass Brothers movie. Um, I mean, well, but it. wasn't Jay Duplass was in that movie, wasn't he? No, uh, Mark Duplass was in Mark Duplass, Duplass was but it in was a movie. Lynn Shelton movie, um, but it had a baghead or hump day or that, that kind of a feel of a movie. Um, How would you describe that look? The look or the feel of it. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, it's the look and the feel. How about I think that? that, well, the look of it is different. I think that the look, because I think just we've come a long way since like Baghead and Hump Day as far as technology, camera technology, um, and they probably had more money. I don't know what they spent. And actually, that's an interview I'd love to, to have as well. Um, but I did look at the credits and I didn't see a lot of crew members in that, in those credits from the, from a camera side. It looked like it was like a, you know, they had a, a first and a second AC and I, and maybe like one, I think I wrote it down like one grip and one electric. It wasn't like a big, a big department there. And it felt like that in the sense that the lighting was very natural, you know, maybe he lit and, you know, but it felt like that kind of lighting that you get with a lot of practicals um, and the kind of just, you know, unobtrusive camera work that's very or- organic and organic to what they're doing, which is a, which is a very authentic kind of a feel, even though it's a comedy and, and in times really over the top, it was very grounded with the performances, which is the kind of stuff I love, you know, where you can kind of take something in a really crazy direction, but it all feels real. None of those people felt like characters, even though even Jason Schwartzman's character, which was a little bit more like slightly like a cartoon was still grounded. And, and, um, I just thought that I thought it was terrific in that, in that kind of a way. And to me, the look of it was just, you wouldn't go, oh my God, I walked out of the most amazing looking film. You would, you would the look just completely served what they were doing, which was, which is exactly what you want. Um, and I look at it from the perspective of, wow, that's, that, that's a look that could probably be done on, with not a whole lot of money, just based on what I know, which is not that much. So yeah, that's, that's the way I would kind of look at that film. The other thing that I was doing at Sundance this year was attending essentially every technical event that I could. And, uh, that of course at Sundance takes the form of a lot of parties, but, uh, Aerie and company three and, uh, Panavision and Kodak and Canon all had big events. And, uh, Mark, did you get to attend any of those events? You know, I, I, I didn't. And I, I, um, I got, 
had the invites for, for the Canon stuff and I was, you know, but my pass is so expensive that I feel like if I don't see three or four movies a day that I'm really not, I need to, I need to do that to kind of amortize, you know, the, the cost of these, these over my passes. So I lately, the last several years, I haven't really been going to many panels. It's a shame you didn't make it over to Canon because Canon did have excellent, excellent drinks this year. <laughs> <laughs> I had enough to drink. That, yeah, that I, there's, there's, I don't sure. drink that much anymore, but I had a little bit to drink a couple of times. Uh, well, well, my hat's off to Canon because they uh, they really killed it with their uh, their space this year. And boy, did they hand you a drink the moment you walked in the door, which was exciting. So. And did they have any interesting camera stuff to talk about or just drinks? Well, they did have a bunch of camera stuff. I, I got to say, it, it was very clever the way that Canon uh, approached Sundance. And I would say that the other camera manufacturers should probably take a page out of their book, which was, hey, welcome to our wonderful, cool, swanky place here on Main Street. Here's a drink. Here's a comfortable seat. After you've had a couple more drinks, now we're going to start the pitch for all of our technology. And that's exactly what they did there. Now you, that there's a gallon of absinthe in you, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the camera I'm going to try and sell you right now. And it really did work that way. I have to say that all the rest of the manufacturers were actually way more subtle about their pitch for technology or the, the pitch for technology was was absent. It was like, oh, here's this really cool thing we're doing. Although I have to I have to say that there was this really bizarre uh, like script page that was folded up as a Kodak ad trying to convince people to that uh, film is like still around and still got it. And there's like this conversation between film and digital and uh, maybe it's, it's, it's worth doing at some point, but I, I will find that and we can reenact the, the lines of film talking to digital. Maybe we can get John Hodgman to play film and Justin Long to play digital. <laughs> that, that would be, that would be spectacular. And I would actually pay both uh, John and Justin to do that. Can that I would, bring him in? I, I don't want to. I, I I hate to be the guy that rips on film, but I rip on film from a very particular perspective in my class, which is if you're making a quote no budget film, you're gonna you're working with just the very few pennies you have in your pocket. There is absolutely no reason ever, 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 ever to shoot film in in my book. If you have millions of dollars that someone gave you and you think you have to shoot film, fine, go shoot film because the percentage of of, the, of film stock to your total budget is tiny. But if you're if you're making a $10,000 film or a $50,000 film or a $100,000 film, and even if you're shooting 16, the percentage of your film stock to your total budget is enormous, and you're spending all your money to get some very particular look that I don't think anybody even cares about anymore. Well, and I, f- I actually feel like in the independent film world, Sundance was one of the things that perpetuated that for a while because they were a huge holdout in the festival world uh, against digital projection. And for the longest time, if you wanted to submit your film to Sundance, you had to have a film print. And I think it probably wasn't... I want to say it was like 2000. I mean, it's been a while. I can tell you. It was like 2008 or 2000 was the first year of digital projection. And then 2001, I had a film there called Somebody, which was shot with XL1s, mm-hmm. Canon XL1s. It was the first film to be digitally shot and projected at Sundance in dramatic competition. Oh, interesting. Because so, um, I can tell you, like, because having worked on the Blair Witch Project, when the Blair, by the time the Blair Witch Project played there, like we'd made that movie yeah, for- you had to have a film print. Yeah, it was a $22,000 project that I think they spent, I, I don't quote I me on know, this. I know, because we were- going to give them the money to do it oh interesting next wave films wasn't it like 50 or 60 oh, it was going to be more like yeah more like 60 or 70 thousand to just to make a film print from a digital file yeah. 
and that's from a standard def digital file too. It's not even high def. Not forget 4K. It w- it was standard def, so it was like. But once Sundance went digital, I mean, it, then all that bets were off. It changed everything. It was a really really big deal. But then, but they had to wait till the projectors actually got there too, because it was you know the DLP projectors had just started coming out. And well, they'd been around for 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 actually for years, but I think for Sundance's particular technical limitations of the different venues they were in and the cost at the time and. 2005, six, seven, really, it probably wasn't until 2008 that they really, they really had the ability to do it right. Well, also, I think that there is a certain degree of, uh, I might get myself in trouble here, but uh, here goes. And there may be a certain degree of elitism where it's like, if in order to play at the most prestigious festival, you have to shoot on the most prestigious thing. And I think it took a long time before nobody could really tell the difference. Or it was so difficult to tell the difference that it didn't matter anymore. Well, again, to, to Sundance credit, I mean, somebody was a film that had a real, I mean, shot with a Canon XL1 in frame mode um, with no lights, no crew. Um, that in dramatic competition, that film did not look like it was it wasn't an elitist film. And I think, you know, it was about four years or five years before all the whole Mumblecore thing started. And so I, I would give them credit for for that. And, and um, but I wanted to say to kind of come back to Sundance this year. I did see a film in the next section. Um, I have to assume based on the credits, again, very few names in the credits and just the nature of that kind of film, that it was a very, very low budget film. And this is another person I'd like to interview. I like the film, but it was shot on film. And the reason I knew it was shot on film wasn't while it wasn't because while I was watching it, I went, God, this looks so amazing. It has to be shot on film or it looks so different that it has to be shot on film. I just started seeing the artifacts, the film artifacts. I started seeing Dust a little specs and shit. Yeah, and it was like I think this was shot on film. That was the yeah. only that was the only clue. What movie was that? Um, it was called Christmas Again. And then I read later that it, you know that in fact it was shot on film, and you know you could you, there was they were talking about it on IndieWire, and I, I would love to you know talk to the guy and find out exactly you know what was the reason. I just felt like that was completely unnecessary. I I, I don't. They could have shot that with a 7D or 5D, for instance, save a lot of hassle and a lot of money and gotten an equally similar look. Not even a better look or a worse look, kind of a similar look to me. But, you know, I mean, some people, you know, I don't know, they have different reasons for doing it. I I would, again, recommend not shooting that kind of a film on film these days. Um, But... So, so I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I know there was a couple of films at the festival this year that were shot on film, including one that was shot on on 16. I, I don't know about Christmas again, but Christmas uh, again, definitely 16. Yeah, there were there were there were they because the films that sh- shoot on film get a lot of attention now because it's so rare. Can you guys talk to like what kinds of trends you saw in cinematography while you were there? Like things, what stuff looked like? What what were the impressions that that you had from the stuff? What were the striking images? I, you know, the the films I saw, a number of them had this, uh, I would say that Christmas Again, James White, which was a next section film that I think was shot, I think it was shot with a red, if I'm remembering on the credits. This was another next film that won Best of Next. And that style and Christmas Again had a similar style of very, it's a very personal style. Like a, it, these are films that are, that are spending a lot of time on one character. So they're to try to get in that character's mind. And so you understand what the day to day details of that character's life is. It's that really tight shooting, a lot of following, a lot of moving with the character, following behind that character, a lot of that stuff going on in both those films. I thought James White, you know, again, not a, commercial film but i really thought it was well done i think these movies i think that the, the uh, to c- kind of go way back to what we were talking about if there was a trend in these next films i saw a lot of not very commercial next films that were really well made not people you know this film uh 
called Bob and the Trees. You're probably never going to see it. it. I thought it was terrific, but it's so like not commercial. I mean, it's a Canadian, well, I don't know if it's Canadian. I think it was maybe partially Canadian, but um, it was shot in Massachusetts, set in, in Massachusetts, but just about this farmer who also d- does logging with his son. And it's like really gets into the weeds of that kind of life. And, um, and again, the, the, the shooting on a movie like that is very much almost like a documentary. I don't know what they shot that on, but it, it, it would, it, all these films felt like they were very organic kind of, you know, they were shot in a very organic way. Um, I have to say this, maybe one of my favorite films, especially from an appreciation standpoint, and also really, I think interesting as far as the way it was shot was the witch, which got a lot of attention early on. And, um, I saw it at a public screening, at the, my very last film the, uh, before I left and shot with the Alexa with um, actually cook lenses, old cook lenses and shot with the Alexa. I think there was one shot in the whole movie that actually was lit. Everything was, you know, natural light or candle lit, um, which just added to the kind of verisimilitude that the filmmakers were going for, which was amazing. I mean, the, they did years of research on the myths of devils and witches, the dialogue, how they made their, how they, the, the, the clothes that they wore, they, they made those clothes exactly the same way. They built structures in the same way, using the same materials. It was very authentic, just an amazing premise, which is, you know, you've got this, these people from like Puritan days, I don't know, it was 15 or 1600s. And I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that captured just the way those people live and the way they talk and the way everything is about God. So like if they if they didn't take a, can we cuss on this? Yeah. If they didn't take a crap in the morning and like, oh my God, I've sinned. God hates me. I mean, it's, it's an exhausting way to live. We don't say crap. Yeah, okay. Crap, um, I just want to make sure because I, <laughs> I can let it roll. Yeah, um, but you know, said cuss. So like, yeah, of course if it's, I know I'll get into it, but um, uh, the fucking no, the, um, but you know, like the, obviously the, if the crops don't come in, then clearly they have done all these wrong things and, but the devil and the boy. And, and so they, they capture that, that, that feeling of like what it would be like to live Live like that because these are Puritans, you know, these are very religious people. And then, the, but the, the trick is, what if in fact they were right and there were witches and devils and it wasn't just superstition, it wasn't just that they're really religious, and that was kind of the, the, the basic premise. And it was just a terrific movie. But from a cinematography standpoint, it's going back to Barry Lyndon or something, you know, that kind of a look. Let me just offer a complete 180 degree. And I got to say, this is probably one of the best things about Sundance is that you have so much. I mean, we talk about the typical Sundance movie and we talk about how, you know, year after year you kind of go, oh, yeah, I see why this was programmed. But 125 movies, it's impossible for everything to really be in the same vein. Like I saw Turbo Kid and Turbo Kid is about as far different from the witches you can. Uh, That's Jason Eisner's film, right? Turbo Kid has three directors. So uh, I will have to uh, I will have to Google that to tell you. And uh I will tell you that at the Q&A for the public screening, uh, at least 40 people of the cast and crew showed up, which I've never been to a Q&A with so many people there. And it's a throwback. It is definitely sort of like a late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Ben, this is your movie. This is like your kind of thing. It's like ultra violent, ultra gory and super like uh, period piece as in like it was like an 80s, 90s period piece movie sort of trying to reflect the future. The movie's set in like an alternate universe in 1997, post-apocalyptic. So, uh, and the the primary method of transportation is BMX bicycles. So, uh, now now imagine slasher and gore and all that sort of stuff. Sounds like Jason Eisner to me. He made he made like one of the best shorts of all time. It's called Treevenge, and it also played Sundance. He was an executive producer on it. 
Jason. Uh, oh, okay. So he was involved with it, but he didn't direct it. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the directors here. The directors are uh, Canadian, and uh, it is a joint Canadian-New uh, Zealand production, which is, which I think absolutely captures in your mind. You're going, huh? Canada and New Zealand? Yeah, that's exactly what you get when you when you watch it. So um, I, I saw a couple other movies at the at the festival, which I I thought uh, you know looked very very good and uh one in particular i think is worth singling out which i'm sure that people will be seeing very soon in fact uh, my understanding is that the the movie got picked up for seven million dollars and there was a pledge of 20 million 20 million uh, pna for it so that means uh that there's going to be a theatrical release and there's a lot of people who see it and this is called dope yeah i think it's like 18 million Oh, 18 million, million 18. Well, okay. 18, 20 million. It's, it's, it's pretty close, but you know, uh, I, I have my notes. You're good. Me. Okay. Well, uh, Seven well, million or eight. uh, that was shot by Rachel Morrison and, uh, it looked like a million bucks. It looked, it looked really great. It had a little bit of, uh, a, a stylized look to it. And, uh, I don't think that, well, you know, I don't, I don't even want to say too much about it because I really feel like people should go out and see this movie and just enjoy it for what it is. And it is, uh, it's great and it looks great. And I know we'll be seeing a lot more of Rachel Morrison. I know we'll be seeing a lot more of the cast of that movie. That movie is going to turn some heads and yeah. make, make some waves. Yeah. That was a terrific film and, and just, you know, really commercial, um, for, and broadly commercial. I think if you're, you probably know from my last name uh, or, or my skin color, I'm not black, but I heard that it did appeal to, to a black audience, the black audiences that were there. And then for someone like me, who's about as white a person as you could be, uh, who doesn't know anything about nineties hip hop or, you know, what I, it, it, it's, I'm not probably the target audience or theoretically the target audience. I love the film. I just, it was really, I, th- I, th- I think it just, I think, it, you know, it. I, I called it, you know, uh, Imperial Dreams meets Risky Business. Imperial Dreams was a film that was at Sundance a year or two ago that, that was more of your kind of classic, you know, boys in the hood type of drama. And it had that and it was and there was violence and other things. And yet tonally they managed to find that place, which is really hard to make it funny and have that kind of risky business feel to it also, but with some serious dr- dramatic stuff happening as well. And fun to yeah. be able to, to be able to walk that line of like, this is serious and dramatic and also just fun. I love the, 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 uh, you know, the log line of throwing in risky business. Cause that's like, that's really true. It's kind of like, uh, it, it's a mashup of, of a bunch of different things and kind of defies some, uh, some, I would say categorization, but, risky businesses as from sort of a feel standpoint there's definitely an element of that in that oh yeah film. i mean in plot wise as well oh absolutely yeah can i ask you guys uh one question like as a non sundance person this year i kept hearing about all the new buyers who were showing up and so like amazon was there buying and overstock.com and stuff like that I, I i was like overstock i don't know like if i made a movie i don't know that i would want <laughs> oh like anyway like but uh i mean i'm sure overstock are, are going to be great distributors but I just don't want to conflate my film with. Uh, were they really at Sundance though? Over supposedly they were there buying things. Um, so, but they did, didn't. Did they not? I have not seen that, that they bought anything because oh, they're becoming like a red box. Right? And that's their idea. That maybe they, that's they're the, one of the second most traveled site, like after Amazon or something like that. That was the I, I read something about Overstock. But did you see a rejuvenation at the festival now that there were like I feel like indie film has been in a bad way probably since like two thousand seven two thousand eight. Um, are you seeing it turning a corner now that there are alternate ways, I guess, to get it to an audience? There's 
you know, I don't know. Amazon is more people are using it. Things like Vimeo Pro, blah blah blah. Yeah, I don't know if that's the reason. I mean, it was a really strong, and they're still announcing films. They announced a couple last couple of days. I've got this list in front of me of all the films that have been that have been picked up that have been announced, and um, uh, and it was a really maybe the strongest market yet. I mean, a couple of years ago it was really strong as well. It was not not that bad last year, but there were several films that were picked up for really big money, and then several other films that were picked up for you know in the kind of two or three million range. And then a whole bunch of other films that, you know, you just have to kind of guess about. Um, but um, I don't, I think the, to me, and this is, you know, really getting off, you know, where we could, we could spend hours talking about this, but to me, I feel like these films, if you're going to pay any kind of million or $2 million, you're going to need a theatrical to get that back. I mean, you know, and maybe you end up not doing the theatrical because you, you start test marketing it and whatever, and you realize we're not going to, we're, we're going to cut our losses. But really are you? I mean, like is VOD becoming more of a, of a way that you can make your money back? I think that, you know, there are a few examples, uh, like, you know, the, the, the big one from Sundance a few years ago was the, the really well margin call, margin call famously did well on, on VOD. But I feel like there's so much product now and there's so much more stuff on VOD than there was three years ago or whenever that film was at Sundance that to get noticed, you have to go back to the old fashioned P&A spend on with a theatrical. And there are some films that, that don't maybe don't need that for various reasons, whether either they're they have a big name and you can kind of throw them out on, on VOD and the name, the name will do the rest or there are genre films. Uh, although there's so many genre films or they've got like some kind of a other built in audience, you know, like the actors have big Twitter followings or something like that. There might be, you know, those kinds of reasons. But the films that that are coming out uh, that were picked up this year, like these kinds of films, Mississippi Grind for two million dollars, that film's going to need a like prestige kind of theatrical release is not I mean it's not going to find a big audience on VOD without that, you know, it's going to have to get kind of reviews and these other things. And I don't know. I just feel like, I think that those, those avenues are, are great, but they're, they're, everybody's using them and you still need the theatrical, you know, they picked up, uh, IFC, which is famously mostly a VOD company, but I don't know if it's because they've made some money with, with uh, boyhood, but they, they were very aggressive buyers with, I mean, they usually take a lot of films, but they don't usually pay for them as, as my understanding. And they spent, um, they picked up uh, the D train for three million dollars, and while they certainly know VOD and they know how to l- deliver, you know, a movie to, to VOD, and there's their names in that movie, Jack Black, and I feel like they didn't spend three million with uh, thinking they were just going to dump it on the VOD. They're going to do, they're going to probably do a fairly big theatrical for them, you know, for a small company like that. That's my guess. So, so yeah, three three million. They they can you know between James Franco and Jack Black. They can. It's James Franco. Is the co- that's not James Franco. No, it's a um. What's his name from X Men? Oh, the good-looking guy from X Men. What's his name? Oh, I'm James Marsden. James Marsden. Oh, I didn't know who it was. Yeah. So, um, but uh, there was a, another movie that got picked up like that too, wasn't it? The Bronze. I didn't. Uh, yeah, the uh, over a couple million dollars and has some SNL cast members in it and Gary Cole, but uh, not exactly like uh, people who you generally see like headlining a theatrical release but you probably need a theatrical release although that's a film you know because it's an over kind of over i didn't see it but over top comedy very famous for this like sex scene because she's a gymnast and apparently there's a a sex scene between two gymnasts that that everybody was talking about i tried not to hear too many specifics about it because i want to see the movie but they say you'll never look at a pommel horse the same way again that kind of thing and um so i think that's a movie that you know probably is made you know you probably could make a lot of your money on it's like an old classic dvd kind of a movie you, you know you put it on on um you get a little bit of attention from some kind of small theatrical you put it on vod you have a great trailer 
funny trailer and you know that's a movie that probably could do well without the theatrical although again i think when you spend that kind of money you're thinking uh, theatrical and, and me and uh what was the big one that me and earl and the dying girl i mean they're looking for the the filmmakers turned down the 12 million dollar offer oh, accepted they that they, they accepted a, a a smaller offer i heard it was 4.7 million Oh. With a with a big back end because they mm-hmm. think it's going to be Fault in Our Stars, you know, close to hundred million dollar gross, and they'll and and I think the you know Fox said, give us let, let let's put our let's put the money in the P and A. We'll give you less money up front, but but if it does score like these other you know like that other movie, you'll get a lot more money. And so I think on that one especially, you're going to be seeing a big theatrical suckers. <laughs> well. I think that pretty much does it for our for our no, wrap up no. of. Uh, oh, 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 you got, you got, I've got, got one more I want to say. I want oh, to talk okay. about. Uh, <laughs> I was just, I was actually just going to say like, well, like, yeah, go okay. ahead. Okay. It's a brazen pitch for my class. Also, so uh, <laughs> one of the films that I saw, I can't talk about the cinematography. I don't know what they shot on. Um, I know the budget, but I probably shouldn't say it. Um, but it's in my class, so it's in a range to meet my class. Although it's not on the very small end of the range, but this film called Take Me to the River, um, young filmmaker named Matt Sobel. Um, wrote, directed, and produced it. The f- financing fell through, and he had to p- produce the movie. Um, Yikes! That sounds horrible. And he had some stars in it. I'm getting some, gray some hairs just it. thinking about yeah, doing that. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary business. But he he went back to his um, his home. Uh, he has family in Nebraska, and they went and shot on their like family farm. Um, terrific, like slow burn, really odd kind of. I guess you could call it a psychological thriller or something. But it's a really unusual movie. Um, he's going to be in my class, which is coming up you, when you ask uh, class is February 28th and Mar- uh, March 1st, uh, the last weekend of uh, so, February. So you should go to www.nobudgetfilmschool.com. There's an Eventbrite page, but that, that you, you, once d- you don't worry about how ancient it looks. Yeah, it's, it, looks it is current. It's, it, it, it's very current. It's current, but it's horrible, but, uh, it's a horrible, don't, don't judge me on that site. He's not teaching the no budget website class yeah, yet. No, no, I'm going to have a great website soon, but go to the website. You'll find it somewhere in the website buried and you'll find a big register button or there's a, there's a page for register. It'll take you to an Eventbrite page, which looks a little bit more modern anyway. Um, and you can sign up for the class, but it's going to be a great class, uh, um, but he's, I think he's going to be terrific. Uh, he's got a lot of great stories, how he found this money, how he got these, these actors, the, the, I think really interesting stuff about the, that everybody has a story to tell and maybe, you know, even on the, they don't have to be major plot things that you find like what's just underneath the plot. And he had this really interesting way of talking about that, that I'm excited about. Um, plus I have, I have speaking of cinematography, I have Ricky Forsham, Fosham, who was the director and DP of a film that came out last year that was at South by Southwest last year called And Uneasy Lies the Mind, which was the very first feature completely shot with an iPhone. That film was released, Gravitas released it, and um, he's going to bring some of his accessories and the equipment he used to to shoot. He had a number of different things they used uh, to shoot with the iPhone. And we'll talk a lot about like, what kind of a project should you or should you not shoot with an iPhone and what, you know, how can you design a film around if that's the only camera you can shoot with, how can you design a film where that's like the perfect camera, you know, to make that film. And so not, it's not just how to hit an, how to hit play on an iPhone. That's not that hard, but how to, how to figure out, you know, the, how to meet the iPhone where it lives kind of a thing. Well, I think that's a, that's actually a really good place to leave it. Um, I think that it is really interesting to see what's happening now because uh, there are now, more tools and more ways to get your movie made either on a on a on a high budget a medium budget a low budget a no budget and 
pretty much, you know, it doesn't look like a hundred miles of ass the way movies looked exactly. uh, a few years ago. So, how'd you know I was working on a movie called A Hundred Miles that's of a Ass? Great. That's well, a great title for a movie. Uh, so that wraps us up for this uh, Sundance special. Hopefully, uh, you know, give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this. We can do more uh, mini episodes in the future. Uh, Mark Stoloroff, thank you again so much for coming out. This was my pleasure. I really enjoyed this. And uh, as always, our music is done by Kay's Alatracci. And uh, Ilya, where can people find you? They can find me at hotrodcameras.com. And I would encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Neptune Salad. Thank you very much, and we'll see you on a real episode, a real long episode, a super long episode, very, very soon. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.